Let's talk about a story now that I've been uh, following for many years, and it's the saga of the conservation officer who refused orders to shoot two orphaned bear cubs. Do you remember that? This goes all the way back to 2015. Bryce Cassavant, the conservation officer involved, those two little baby bears, he refused orders to shoot the bears. He took them to a veterinary hospital instead. They were eventually released into the wild. What a saga this was. He was transferred out of the conservation service. This thing has been tied up in court for many years after that. And Bryce Cassavant this week has ended up winning his court case. And he joins me now to talk about it. Bryce, it's nice to talk to you again. Hey, Mike. Yeah, I kind of feel like uh, both of us have won. I mean, you've been on this file as a, as a reporter and a journalist for five years now. I was looking yes. back at some of your old articles. Yes, <laughs> yes, I got a few yeah. columns out of this for the province newspaper over the years, and I'm, I'm yeah. grateful to you for your cooperation on it. But let's um, let's go back before we get into the sort of the legal weeds of this thing. L- let's go back to how this all started, and and this is maybe a familiar story for some listeners, but for a lot of others, they may have forgotten what happened here. But let's go back to 2005 and. You were a conservation officer at that time, and and what happened that day that this whole thing started? Yeah, uh, July two thousand fifteen. I was a two thousand fifteen. Concert- sorry, yeah, two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, July two thousand fifteen, I was a conservation officer and appointed as an unrestricted special provincial constable under the Police Act uh, in British Columbia. I was attached to the Port McNeil RCMP detachment. And during um, a local state of emergency due to a forest fire, I received a kill order for two bear cubs. Okay. Um, as I recall, wasn't the mother the mother bear, wasn't she breaking into a meat freezer or something like that? And that bear had to be put down? Yeah, correct. There was a, uh, there, there is a little bit of confusion uh, currently uh, because of one of the justices' comments about garbage. Actually, it was an outdoor freezer that contained frozen deer and um, fish. Uh, the reason, yeah. And so it wasn't actually uh, garbage per se, uh, but the mother bear did enter um, a home and um, was uh, euthanized. Uh, in accordance yeah. with provincial policy. However, her two cubs uh, were not. Right, so that's the deal. So the mother bear was euthanized, and you agreed with euthanizing the mother bear in that case, right? Under the standing uh, provincial um, policies and rules of the day, uh, it wasn't an option. Um, yeah. She was within a destruction category. However, um, her cubs were clearly not uh, within a destruction category uh, under the ministry poli- policies, and so... I refused the order on the grounds that it was an unlawful kill order. Right, right. So why did you do that? Like when you saw these two little bears, why did you why did you think they should not be killed? Well, there's there's a couple overlapping issues here uh, which got flushed out in court. The the first and most important one is, you know, conservation officers in BC have full unrestricted provincial police appointments. They are leftovers from the old BC provincial police force. And a lot of people don't know that, that conservation officers are actually provincial police officers as well, even though they're not a police force anymore, per se. So as a constable, fully armed, dressed in a municipal policing uniform, I got a badge in my pocket. My general principle is that kill orders are unlawful. So right out of the gate, um, as a constable, uh, you know, 
I was obligated, in my view, to decline the kill order on the grounds that it was just unlawful. You don't issue kill orders to constables. Human or non-human is irrelevant. And so that's sort of the, the first the first uh, approach that I took. And then, of course, quickly on the heels of that is um, the two bear cubs in question were cubs of year. They were very small and they were born that spring and they uh, did not fall within any destruction category under the ministry's policies. It, it was unlawful to kill them. Right. So some of those destruction categories, as I understand it, was if, if a bear has become habituated to eating garbage or is is a threat to humans, that would fall into a, a kill category, right? But you you felt that what that these bear these baby bears had not been accustomed to eating garbage or hum, human food or something. Well, yeah. So there's a yeah. there's a you know the, the case sort of took an interesting turn there, but the complainant was very clear that um, there was no, um, you know, garbage outside of the house. And I confirmed that as the attending officer, it was frozen deer meat and uh, fish. Um, uh, A cub under six months of age, um, scientifically uh, has been proven that, um, you know, there, there isn't really this aspect of situation that the government alleges. And then thirdly, uh, it just wasn't even in accordance with the ministry uh, policies and rules. They were supposed right. to receive a medical and a behavioral assessment, which is exactly what they got. Right. And so you took the bears, so you refused the orders to put the bears, the baby bears down, and you took them instead to, was oh. it a veterinary hospital? They first went to a local veterinarian for a medical assessment. We have to remember that they were sedated, so there were some issues with the telazole, which was used for sedation, so they needed to see a vet to make sure they were still breathing properly. And, of course, they were. Uh, they were they, I had given them the correct dose, and they passed their medical assessment. They were left overnight in quarantine, uh, which we all know what quarantine is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we've all been through that. And yeah. then they were transported the next morning to a wildlife recovery center. Okay. Was this a case, Bryce, of, I mean, every people may have seen the pictures of these bears. They're so cute, these, these, you know, cute little baby bears. Did that play any role into, like, you know, I mean, you're a former military guy. I mean, did you look at these bears and say, I, I, just, I didn't have it in my, in my heart to, to kill these baby bears because they were so little and cute? Or was it more to, for, for to you as a conservation officer, sometimes you got to make tough calls and put down animals and stuff. Was it more a case for you? It's not because they were little, cute little baby bears. It was that you you just felt that legally they they shouldn't be put down, right? Like how would you? Yeah, how would for you sure. That? I mean, I mean, you know, I'm I'm trying to. Sometimes things get boiled down to the legal workings of a decision, which can yeah. be quite devoted. But I guess this wasn't a, this, this wasn't like an emotional thing where you said I'm I'm going to I'm not going to kill these bears because they're cute little bears. This was. This was you doing your job as making the, what you felt was the correct call as a conservation officer. Correct. You know, I did, I did my job as a constable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now let's talk about what happened to the bears. Okay. So they, they went into this rehab center and then what happened? Like how, what kind of rehab did they go through when they were at that, that place? Yeah, they go through a, you know, a biologist, a qualified wildlife biologist gets assigned to do a behavioral assessment, you know, and sort of make that determination. Are these bears habituated or not? You know, and of course they weren't. And they re- received further medical um, 
care and rehabilitation care, uh, as well as some uh, training and how to, to forage and search for their own food over the course of the next year. And eventually, uh, when they were old enough, they were released back into the wild. Right. And as I, and then what happened to them? Does, do we know? Because as I recall, when they were released, weren't they fitted with some radio callers to keep track of them? Yeah, they were one of the first black bears to be, black bear cubs to be fitted with um, radio callers here in BC. And um, they were tracked um, all through that uh, fall and winter. And they ended up denning that winter. And then um, wow. their necks got big. The collars um, snapped off uh, in the coming spring when they emerged. And, and that was it. They, the collars stopped transmitting once they fall off. And the bears go off to be bears. Right. And so who knows what happened, happened to them after that? Maybe there's still... How long do black bears live? Is, there, is it possible they're still out there in the wild somewhere? It, it, is, it is possible yeah. they're still out there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So... I, I guess that's a happy ending for those bears, right? I mean, they were successfully reintroduced to the wild, right? Yeah, for for the bears, I mean, they they go off and you know scrounge around for some berries and fish for the next few years, uh, unbeknownst to them. Uh, you know, I'm I'm back in the trenches and the fight carries on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's when the fight started. So what after you refused to um, after you refused to put the baby bears down, were you suspended or were you trans- transferred out of your job what happened there briefly and then we'll take a break and continue into it but continue talking about it but what happened after you after you refused orders to kill the bears well right out of the gate this was a sunday uh, afternoon when the situation happened at monday morning first thing in the morning 7 a.m i was uh, suspended without pay uh, pending a performance uh, investigation and i received notice that a complaint had been filed against me for um, the legal term is dereliction of duty, which you would know as insubordination. Uh, just before I get into the, the the legal stuff on this, Bryce, when I when I think back to 2005 when all this happened with the baby bears, I remember that that was a story that sort of tw- tw- oh man, I keep saying 2005. Why do I keep doing that? 2015. Um, that was a story that flashed around the world. Like, who was that? Fa- wasn't there? There was someone. A lot of famous people. A lot of people came to your defense. Was it Ricky Gervais who was put out a tweet or something? Yeah, Ricky Gervais and uh, Bill Maher. There, they sort of fan the flames and help bring public attention to it. It was covered by the New York Times, China. And incidentally, I I managed to get a hold of his. Uh, Ricky Gervais uh, agents this morning and I just said thank you uh, to him so again you know I do appreciate the the help and support of Leon yeah I remember Ricky Gervais I guess is an uh, animal uh, he's an activist against animal cruelty and I remember him going public and saying standing up for you after you had lost your job over this so let's let's talk about the 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 legal fight over this. So now you were suspended. I know you were eventually um weren't you eventually sort of shuffled out of the conservation service and given a different job yeah the you know initially the way this played out is the bcgeu the the government the government employees services union um which represents conservation officers in bc um they got involved and you know i I sort of told them at the time i said you know um i'm a i'm a constable i'm appointed under the police act you can't as a union you know this isn't uh this isn't a grievance issue. This isn't a, this isn't a collective bargaining issue. You can't, you can't take my job and go negotiate me away with the employer. Like I have some rights here under the police act. And 
their legal counsel took a different position and ultimately um, they negotiated, my own union negotiated with the employer for my dismissal, which is exactly what happened. And I was dismissed as a conservation officer and transferred, um, air quotations are transferred, out of the conservation officer service. My constabulary appointments were revoked and I was shuffled into the Ministry of Force. Right. And you have been fighting in court for a long time over this. What was it you were hoping to achieve? Did you want your job back as a conservation officer or what were you hoping to achieve in court? Yeah, you know, most of it was, uh, you know, my, my main um, motivations for um, fighting this for all these years uh, were the damage to my reputation that it was causing, uh, both in Victoria and within the legal community here in BC, I was uh, cast uh, as insubordinate. Um, the way the um, initial union and employer actions took place with that shuffle, it sort of left this gray cloud hanging over me where executive staff within the government, including uh, many very senior um, uh, legal professionals and lawyers, you know, maintained the allegations that... Um, that A, I was uh, insubordinate and could not be trusted, and that B, I had no rights as a constable under the Police Act, and it was their job, and they could manage my position as they saw fit uh, with the union. Okay, interesting. There was a, a critical ruling in this case uh, the other day. Tell me what happened in court. You've won the case, right? What, what happened with the court ruling here? Yeah, so of course, I've been fighting this for five years. Um, I had, uh, prior to last week, I had um, two arbitration decisions against me, um, saying that the union and the employer um, have care and control of the employment relationship and they can do what they want. Uh, the Labor Relations Board of British Columbia and their senior counsel and staff upheld um, that rationale of the arbitrator. So I had two decisions against me at the Labor Relations Board as well. Th those issues ended up in the BC Supreme Court last year, and I ended up with two BC Supreme Court rulings against me as well, saying that, no, everything that was done to you um, is fine. Uh, the Labour Relations Board, the union and the employer are correct. And of course, I've always maintained that kill orders are unlawful. And my position before the Court of Appeal was very firm. I, you know, I said, um, you know, the, with respect, the uh, Supreme Court justices have made an error. Um, the Labor Relations Board and the union have no jurisdiction over this employment relationship uh, as it pertains to constabulary discipline. And all my rights under the Police Act were denied me. And uh, ultimately, our highest court has agreed. So what happens now, Bryce? This has been a five-year saga. What's next for you now? Yeah, it's a good question. I have retained Arden Beddoes with Beddoes Litigation in Vancouver um, to sort of work out um, what the future holds. The Court of Appeal, um, for the listeners that uh, might not be familiar with it, it is a panel of um, justices. So it was a unanimous panel decision and they nullified the whole process. So it, they didn't just set the past aside, they actually nullified it. <clears throat> and in, in legal speak, that means it never should have happened. And as of 10 o'clock last Thursday has never happened, legally speaking. And oh, so, okay. yeah. And so the, the second part of that is um, that, that order, that unanimous decision is a very strong um, 
position for the for our court to take and we got we got hey bryce we got 30 seconds left here bottom line is there anything do you regret anything that you did here no you had to do it over again given the same circumstances with the same information i'd make the same decision today bryce congratulations on your uh, court victory and thanks for coming on and talking about it today okay thanks mike All right, welcome back. As the COVID-19 pandemic drags on, a lot of people still relying on government assistance programs. If you take a look down the list of all the COVID-19 programs that have been rolled out here, it's kind of a an alphabet soup of programs out there. Of course, you've got the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, maybe one of the most popular programs that have been brought out. You've got the Canada Emergency Student Benefit, the CESB. You got the Canada Emergency Business Account, the CEBA, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, or the CEWS. So many programs. A lot of people still have pro, uh, questions about them. Here's one that's occurring to me when it comes to CERB. What happens when people max out the benefits under this program and they still need help? I wonder if the government might extend the eligibility for CERB. Now, if you have questions about these programs, here's your opportunity to call and talk to an expert. Okay, I'm going to read the phone lines out right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. If you have questions about CERB or these other government assistance programs, my guest is Stephen Gilman. He's an employment lawyer at the Zamfiru Law Firm. Uh, Stephen, thanks a lot for doing this. Hey, my pleasure. Okay, when it comes to the CERB, um, what happens when people start maxing out? Because I know that pretty soon, if someone has been receiving CERB right from the start back in March, there's a time limit that you can receive these benefits, right? So are people going to start maxing out on CERB? Well, right now, it looks like uh, the max out point is is quick approaching for many of those individuals laid off uh, or or furloughed in March. Um, And there is talk... Uh, from the federal government of extending CERB for some workers. Um, some, the protection that exists for some workers is that CERB was not meant to displace or overlap with uh, unemployment insurance. So many workers, if it does in fact expire, will be able to join back on to unemployment insurance. Oh, okay. um, but right now we're, we're kind of getting mixed signals from the government on, on whether it's going to be extended or not. And, and we're expecting an announcement soon. Okay, what is the most common question that you get as an employment lawyer around around these programs? Let's say the CERB program. Are people do people ask you about the eligibility and and how much money they can get, or what's what are you most commonly asked? Well, you know, CERB eligibility is certainly something individuals ask about. Uh, our firms put uh, a, a CERB eligibility calculator on our website um, to to assist some of our clients with that, um, and. The biggest question is a lot of individuals who are laid off, I mean, not surprisingly, some have been outright dismissed. And the biggest question I get is, does CERB displace my severance entitlements? So if my employer has now decided to follow through with a dismissal, am I eligible to collect CERB and my severance? The answer so far coming from the federal government and the legislation we have in place is, yes, you can. Whereas with unemployment insurance, there is a payback provision, or if you receive severance when you're dismissed, you've got to have a waiting period until that severance uh, uh, gets you through the EI period. 
Okay, sometimes we hear about people who are receiving the CERB when they should not be receiving it, and Canadians have already made 190,000 repayments under this program, and uh, the Canada Revenue in, uh, Agency, uh, I guess, will have a bit of a job on its hands uh, cal- dealing with this. The, it's tax. Well, it's tax. Uh, you have to pay tax on the CERB, right? It's taxable income. You do. You have oh. to pay tax on the CERB, and it, it seems the government, and, and, and understandably, rolled out this plan incredibly quickly um, because people needed money yesterday when the funds started coming out. And now, um, as we're kind of hearing today or over the last few days, the government is saying, okay, well, what are the penalties if someone's done this fraudulently? Um, and right now, we're not sure. I mean, uh, Trudeau's government has said there could be a $5,000 fine if you're, if you're misusing CERB. There could be uh, potentially up to six months in jail. Uh, there could be um, penalties if you refuse reasonable employment. And essentially what happened is, is the government rolled it out, said there would be penalties, didn't specify what it is, and now... Uh, the government is trying to get a bill through to basically put forward what those penalties look like. So right. you can't do it, but if you do do it, what are the penalties? And, and none of us really know at this point. How about some of the other programs, Stephen, that are out there, like the, the Canada Student Assistance Program? What are the most common questions you get on that one? You know, a lot of times um, it's it's eligibility-based. Um, and, and, you know, oftentimes... CERB is what we focus the most on because a lot of our clients at the firm have been recently laid off or dismissed, and they're looking at the interplay there. But also, uh, I believe there was also a student work program that was put forward. And, and the questions we do get from students uh, mostly relate to eligibility. Um, the other interesting piece, and, and what we hear a lot from, is seasonal workers. So workers who have been off all winter and were about to go back to work, and they're saying, do I uh, do can I have CERB even though I've exhausted my EI? And the answer to that question is yes, but that's what we're seeing a lot of. And a lot of students fall into that seasonal work category. Chris in Kelowna, hi. Hey, I just had a question. Uh, Thanks for the call. Um, So when I was laid off in March, I applied for EI and then automatically received the CERB. And I understand that's like a three-month program. Right. So when that CERB... uh, is discontinued does the ei automatically kick in okay good question steven i think we touched we touched a little bit on that earlier how does that work yeah so right now as in sort of actually it could be extended we're, we're still waiting to hear more from the federal government but but great question one i get all the time uh, once your serb runs out your ei will then kick in so to speak so when the CERB comes to an end, if you're eligible for EI and you have the requisite hours before the layoff, you should have no problem with receiving EI. Let's go to Dave on the line in Surrey. Hi, Dave. Hey, thanks, gentlemen, for taking my call. I appreciate sure. it. Yeah. Hey, I, I have an employee that keeps calling in sick for the last probably month and a half, and he claims that he's sick and doesn't want to come in. And he, we haven't been paying him, which I don't understand how he can't come in and, and get paid. Would he be eligible for CERB this time, this period when he's been off? You know, that's a great question. It, it really would depend on the illness. So right now, the way that the CERB benefit is written out is that if you're caring for a loved one uh, who is affected by corona, if you yourself have corona or, or otherwise, if, if uh, you have an illness, you can apply to EI. But for those corona-based things, yes, he, he theoretically could apply to CERB. Would he have to have 
a positive test for COVID-19 or can you just say I'm sick and that's all that's the, all you have to say? Well, I, 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 it's, it's really up to um, Service Canada to figure out whether you're eligible or not. I would think oh. if the illness is, is either suspected due to CERB or due to CERB, my apologies, due to Corona um, oh. or... Uh, there is a positive test, then, then he would most certainly be automatically uh, put on the program. Um, but how they would deal with an employee who can't go to work, um, who's traditionally ill, so let's say it's due to uh, a stomach virus uh, that's long-lasting, they can also apply to EI sickness benefit too, which is a, a separate program. Um, but, but one would think there should be some income support there if it's a long-lasting illness. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Jack calling from Pitt Meadows. Hi, Jack. Hi. Uh, my wife was furloughed. Uh, she's a retail manager when uh, her store closed. She applied for EI and was redirected to serve. Now, she makes fairly decent money and would have qualified for the max EI, which is more than the 2000 a month serve. Does she have any recourse for that? She's going back to work next week, so she's not going to. It's not a matter of running out of serve. It's just a matter of uh, not really paid what she should have been paid. Hmm. Stephen, yeah, that's a great question. And, and what's been happening um, is is when you apply, if you're laid off in a certain time period, you apply for EI. Um, you everyone's been automatically been put on the serve program. And I'm assuming your question is, can she? Uh, go back to the government and ask for the difference between the two programs. I think at yeah. this point it was fairly minimal, the max out point. Um, but the answer to that question is I would call Service Canada and spend some time on the phone with them if you can get them on the phone at this point and, and ask a few more questions about why she was put on CERB as opposed to EI. At this point, it's not clear whether she'd be entitled to uh, the difference between the two. Back to the phone lines. Marsha on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Marsha. Hi. Um, so I'm a, a tour guide. I received a T4A from my employer. Um, last year I did 80 tours. Every tour canceled this year. I'm not sure what's going to happen after the, uh, the four months. Uh, clearly, tourism isn't, is not going to happen. So what are my options after that? Are you receiving CERB now? Yes, I am. Right. So you're wondering what happens after it maxes out, right? Well, eight thousand dollars is uh, not what I make as a tour guide yeah. over a, a full, you know, six or seven month period. Right. This is something I think a lot of people will be facing, Stephen, as we start to approach those first kind of max out dates, and people have received the maximum available under CERB, but like the caller says, they're still out of work. So, like you, as you said earlier. The government here is anticipation that government may announce something, correct? There is. And, and, and there, there's yet another option, though. If okay. you're not being brought back to work, I mean, temporary layoff uh, provisions extend to 13 out of 20 weeks. If you're laid off for 13 weeks um, out of a period of 20, your employment can be deemed dismissed. And even more so for your full severance entitlements at the time of layoff, you can treat that as a dismissal. So when someone's asking me a question, what happens when CERB ends? If, if you're not being brought back to your employment at that point, um, or even at a point earlier, it could be a dismissal and you'd be entitled to severance. Um, you know, m- my advice would be 
to get advice. Call uh, our firm, call an employment lawyer, and see if you have some severance entitlements if after service ran out, or even at this moment, just to figure out whether what severance support you have moving right. forward. Interesting. Terry on the phone line calling from Merritt. Hi, Terry. Hi there. I have a question. As a sure. working senior who's lost self-employment due to COVID and also collects old age pension, am I entitled to serve? Well, the difference between traditional unemployment insurance and CERB is that under CERB, if you're, uh, uh, or sorry, under CERB, if you're self-employed, you're still entitled to the benefit. So if you haven't applied, um, I would say that you do so right away. And um, your old age security or your, your Canadian pension should not displace that benefit. Um, but I would encourage you right away to go and apply for CERB because self-employed individuals are entitled. Okay, so if you're collecting a uh, uh, Canada pension plan, or old age security, uh, you'd still be eligible to collect CERB too? Yeah, I mean, it's, okay. it's, it's like any other pension. If you were in receipt of a pension uh, but working, yeah. you still get severance, you still right. get CERB. Um, so there is absolutely no harm in making the application. Sean on the line in West Bank. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you? Good, go ahead. Um, so I've heard rumors that if you make less than a thousand dollars a month you can still collect your full serve is that correct so, yeah they're, they're, those aren't actually rumors i mean individuals earning income and i believe the last cutoff was close to a thousand dollars a month you still can apply and collect serve um with some of the new changes that are coming in so let's say your employer offered to extend your hours or or, or uh, raise them and you said no in order to collect serve and both um, um, the thousand dollars a month. Yeah, uh, they're now talking about penalties if you deny that employment. Uh, but right. for the time being, you are allowed to collect some income as well as serve. Yeah, because now they're saying that if you turn down a legitimate work opportunity, <clears throat> you could be in some trouble under this under this bill that's in front of the the house, right? But Mike, I want to caution all your listeners on that because yeah. we don't know it, 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 right now the the draft of the bill. Um, says, if you turn down reasonable work opportunities, so what's reasonable? If I earn $70,000 a year and my employer says, I'll bring you back at $35,000 a year, is that a reasonable opportunity? Yeah. I would hazard a guess to say no, and that individual would be able to treat their employment as constructively dismissed. So mm -hmm. before, and again, before you accept any offer from um, your employer and coming back to work. If it doesn't look right, if it doesn't feel right, if it's a huge reduction in pay, I would encourage you to get legal advice first. Let's squeeze in one more call here if we can. So Nora calling from Nanaimo. Hi there. Yeah, hey there. Um, listen, we're, we're trying to get our restaurant up and going. Um, yeah. And for this period, there's no way we're going to be making $1,000 a month with all the expenses that we've got um, to fork out. Is are we still eligible for that, or is okay. it business income? Or Stephen, thirty seconds. Okay, I'll I'll be quick on this. The two things that I would look to, one being the wage subsidy program to see if you can get some assistance for paying wages of employees. The other is look to the student wage subsidy program. Uh, right now, um, the government is covering up to one hundred percent of wages uh, at the minimum wage level uh, for students to come work. So these are two programs that could help uh, relieve. The, the payments to employees in a very significant okay. way. Stephen, thanks for doing this.
Hey, my pleasure and any time. Let's talk about the movement for police reform in Canada now. Ever since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there have been rallies and calls for reform across the United States, but also in Canada as well. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the other day said maybe police officers should wear body-worn cameras in order to monitor their on-the-job performance. What do you think about that? These cameras are fairly common in the United States, but not so much in Canada. The city of Calgary, their police officers believe, is the only major city in Canada that has body-worn cameras for police officers. I'm going to talk about that. Also, people calling for defunding police. Have you heard that one? Defund the cops. What does that mean? How would it work? And is it going to happen in Canada? Very pleased to welcome back to the show Tom Stamatakis now. He's the president of the Canadian Police Association. They represent police officers across the country. He is a former long-serving Vancouver police officer, former president of the Police Officers Union in Vancouver. Tom, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. Uh, You're welcome. Good morning. I appreciate it. Let's talk about those body cameras, first of all. What are your thoughts on that, body cameras for police officers? Oh, well, generally speaking, we're not opposed to uh, utilizing body-worn cameras for police. Uh, there's certainly utility in uh, having police officers deploy with body-worn cameras, particularly in certain situations, you know, rural, remote areas where police officers might be working by themselves or for specific duties, public order events, those kinds of things. The main concern, though, with body-worn cameras is, you know, the cost, not only the cost of acquiring the equipment, but the ongoing cost of managing the data, the people that are required to do that, uh, and, you know, the cost in the context of, you know, what what the body-worn cameras will actually provide or achieve in terms of benefit. Yeah, do you think that they could possibly be something that could help police officers as as well as members of the public as well? Because it seems to me that if you have an accusation of uh, officer misconduct, and maybe an officer is wrongly accused of misconduct, it would be a good thing to have a video record of that, wouldn't it? So is it potential to to not only protect the public and maybe increase public confidence in the police, but also protect police officers themselves against wrongful accusations? Oh, for sure. That's, that's certainly been uh, the experience where body-worn cameras are widely utilized. Ironically, though, that's also part of the reason why uh, a lot of... Um, People now, particularly in the states where they are more widely used, are are quite dismissive of, of body worn cameras and 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 the video evidence that's collected by them. Because in the context of you know the calls for body worn cameras in the aftermath of you know the George Floyd uh, tragedy in in Minneapolis and the reaction in the U.S., you know the expectations with respect to body worn cameras don't actually sort of match up with with the outcomes that we see where they're more widely widely utilized. Okay, when would the cameras be switched off and on? I mean, this gets into some some of the deep policy details about how something like this would work. But I've already heard from police officers saying like, "Wait a second, what if I'm dealing with a, a vulnerable person like a, a a homeless drug addict or a victim of uh, domestic violence?" Or what if I'm having a, a private conversation, for example, if I take a phone call with my spouse or my, my own child or something and the police officer is on the job, would, would the police officer be able to turn the camera off and on during these events? What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Because some people might say, well, just keep the cameras on. You know, a police officer starts his or her shift, the cameras go on and they stay on the entire shift until you go off duty. What do you think? 
Well, and, and those are some of the issues that have come up and that are, that, you know, that are part of the discussion with respect to deploying body-worn cameras in Canada and, and, and probably, you know, a lot of the reason why they're not being deployed more widely because if and when body-worn cameras are going to be used, they have to be used in the context of the existing legislative framework that, that we all operate under in, in this country. And that means, you know, there are certain privacy uh, laws that have to be respected yeah. Uh, all of those other kinds of things. And we know from the research, based on the experience in the U.S., where, where there's been some pretty extensive research, there are issues deploying um, body-worn camera when you're dealing, for example, with vulnerable and marginalized um, people or other uh, people that police often deal with that are in in uh, very vulnerable situations. That uh, and, and, you know, what impact does it have on them to be videotaped when that they're when they're at their worst or when they've been, you know, the victim of some horrific crime, et cetera. And then there are privacy issues as well with respect to police officers and, and, and the right to have a reasonable expectation of privacy when they're engaged in certain activities. Okay, that said, though, the, the Canadian Police Association, as you said, are not opposed to the cameras, right? Because there may be a perception that maybe the police officers or their unions or their employee associations would be opposed to these cameras. But you're saying, as the head of the Canadian Police Association, you're not opposed to it, correct? No, no, that's exactly what I'm saying, and and that's another frustration. Is you know, conveniently, people often want to blame you know associations or unions uh, as as the impediment for doing some of these things. In fact, associations and unions typically are quite willing to work through uh, these issues as long as uh, you know implementation takes into account all of the issues and and whatever the process is for utilizing the equipment is 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 fair and appropriate in the context of our legal framework like i said right speaking of tom stamatakis he's the president of the canadian police association what about defunding the police i mean this is a term that we're hearing more and more often from from uh, people seeking accountability for police officers as we see these protests and rallies across the country what does that mean to you defund the police and what are your thoughts on that well that's 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 a good question. I mean, I, uh, to be honest with you, I don't have any idea what that means based on on what some of the people that are calling for this notion of defunding the police are saying. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, lots of people suggesting that, uh, you know, uh, police be defunded, to use that term, or budgets reduced. But no, I haven't heard anybody uh, making recommendations with respect to how you're going to reduce demand so that the funding that's currently being allocated to policing can be reduced. Uh, and then what is it that you, that, that these people don't want the police to do and what's going to happen in the interim while, while we look at other alternatives to the police responding to the issues that 12.6, 12.8 million Canadians, by the way, in the last year we have complete data, complete data for is 12.8 million Canadians that called the police for service. So what do we, you know, where, how are we going to reduce that demand on the police in this country? I, I think it's uh, it's probably unfortunate. It's kind of an imprecise term in my mind, because when people hear the term defund the police, I think maybe they make a connection in their mind that that means you shut police departments down, like you get rid of the police, which obviously cannot happen and won't happen. But if you talk to people who are sort of on the activist side of this file, they will say, well, what it means is that you you radically overhaul the 
terms of reference for how the police operate and what kind of calls they would potentially respond to, and you would lower their budgets as a result. So, for example, we often hear that police are now, as first responders, dealing with drug overdoses, mental health calls, that kind of thing. So, potentially, could you train uh, new sort of first responders who would respond to issues like that, overdoses, mental illness, and, and not have the police respond in cases like that. Is that, is that possible? Or, or would the police always be required? Like if you're called out to a, on a mental health call where it could be a dangerous situation for a first responder, I mean, you, don't you need security? You would need a police officer potentially there? Yeah, and, and, and in, in that, you know, the way you frame that conversation, that, those are conversations that are, that are ongoing and that should yeah. be occurring all the time. And, yeah, if you can come up, if there's some way of building capacity in some other uh, public service or social service um, to, to take away some of that work or expectation demand from the police, I don't think there's any police officers that would be opposed to that. But yeah. You also have to be a realistic because, yeah, you can train that specially. Um, you can provide somebody with that special training so that they can respond in the first instance. But guess what? Typically what police deal with are crises. So when that situation becomes a crisis, the police are still going to be called. So you, you still need to maintain the capacity in your police services and communities. I think that's what the public expect. That's what they consistently say when they're polled by municipalities or by anyone else. You need to maintain the capacity so that when it is a crisis and that specially trained person who doesn't have the skills and the training of a police officer, when they call the police, somebody's going to be available to respond. One more question for you, and then we'll take some phone calls. I appreciate you taking phone calls here on the show today, too, by the way. Uh, No no, no trouble. Do you you think that... Are police officers, the morale of, of frontline police officers across the country, as, as we see the reaction to the death of George Floyd, we see some of the turmoil we've seen largely in the, in the United States, but also criticism of the police, calls for more oversight. What kind of impact do you think that's having on, on frontline police officers? Is this impacting their mor- morale at all? Hundred percent. It's having a huge impact. It, you know, we're 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 already a workforce that deals with trauma and uh, you know um, fatigue because of the demand of you know twenty four seven deployment, three hundred sixty five days a year. You're attending court on your days off, and then on top of that, you know, we've become this focus of a lot of frustration in society. Clearly. And, you know, we're an easy target because, you know, we wear uniforms, we respond to these issues or protests when they happen or incidents that occur in the community. And we're a visible sort of, I guess, representative for the government, particularly because we're often, you know, the the service that has to implement or enforce or respond to the reaction to a failed government policy or a new government policy where they're trying to impose something on a community. And so we become this target. And, and, and in my view, uh, you know, and I can talk more about it, but in my view, that's a bit unfair because often, you know, I mean, the demand on police, when I talk about those 12.8 million calls for service, the reason why there's that many calls is because we aren't building capacity in other areas to properly deal with mental health issues, or there have been government policy decisions to deinstitutionalize people with mental health without providing the services in the community. So that increases demand on policing. 
You want to add more, there's calls for more training. Well, that drives cost and increases demand. There's calls for more oversight. Well, that drives cost, there's, you know, and, and creates an additional demand on the police service. So it is very frustrating, particularly for frontline police officers that are out on the street, in the community, every day, interacting with people who, by the way, in the vast majority of occasions are, are happy to see a police officer and the interaction's positive, but this constant negative um, conversation that occurs publicly or on social media has a wearing effect.